0: Hello and welcome to episode 17 of the Boss Podcast. I'm Kirk Bailey and this week we welcome Patrick Campbell, the CEO of ProfitWell and his Boss 2019 talk, Cancer, Competitors and the Cacophony of Being a CEO. ProfitWell provides free turnkey subscription financial metrics for over 8,000 companies. Prior to ProfitWell, Patrick led strategic initiatives for Boston-based Jim Vara and was an economist at Google and the US intelligence community. Welcome to the Business of Software podcast, where we share talks from our conferences and discussions with software people that will make you think. You can find out more at businessofsoftware.org. Building a company takes an extraordinary amount of effort, no matter your role, and neither life nor competitors will hold punches for anyone. CEO and founder of Profitwell, Patrick Campbell, knows this firsthand. Using his experience bootstrapping profit well to over $10 million and beyond whilst simultaneously undergoing some pretty big personal load blocks, he talks us through essential frameworks to help you handle problems in the proper context, whilst also teaching some operational takeaways to keep you ahead of the increasingly competitive landscape. Happy listening!
1: How are we all doing? Great. Well, this talk is going to be terrible. Um... We're going to talk about terrible feelings. We're going to talk about terrible times. Um, and also, like, what to do to not be terrible in those terrible feelings and those terrible times. Um, so, yeah, I'm, I'm a very happy person. Um, it's going to be awesome. Uh, and we're going to tell three stories here on this axis of, of talking about terribleness. Um, we're going to have some tactical detours here. Just because I want to make sure that everyone gets something out of this. And some of you are a little bit further in your careers, so some of the lessons that we might be talking about, you might already know. Um, And then ultimately, there's going to be a lot of really terrible jokes. Um, You're encouraged to laugh, Um, you don't have to laugh. Um, I get the satisfaction out of the terrible jokes either way. Um, So it's going to be great. Um, Can you guys hear me? A little soft. I'm very soft spoken, large man, soft voice. So, um, how about now? Is this a little bit better? Yes. All right, I'll get fired up as we go. So, just like starting soft here. A um, little bit of background on who in God's name am I to come up here and talk about these things. Um, so, I run a company called Profiwell. Um I started my career in US intelligence in DC. Um doing econometrics and math, and then I worked at Google, uh, basically building fun little models to use data and working at the NSA, finding bad guys and gals, and working at Google, finding money. Um, interestingly enough, same models. Um, <laughs> just different outcomes, which is really, really exciting. Um, and then I jumped into the startup fray because I'm just a glutton for punishment. Um, I started Prothwell about seven years ago. a um, little bit of background on us. Uh, we basically help subscription and SaaS companies with the hard parts of subscription growth. And what I mean by that is we have a couple of different tools that basically help with kind of the gnarly areas of trying to grow a business. Uh, We have an enterprise-grade analytics product that is free, uh, that plugs into your billing system, Stripe, Zora, Braintree, whatever you're using, and basically gives you free access to your MRR, your churn data segments, all that kind of fun stuff. Um, At this point in time, because it's free and it also is pretty good, at least in my opinion, um, we have about 20 to 25% of the entire subscription market using this product. Um, And then the way that we make money is we have a couple of different products that help with churn reduction, pricing, um, revenue recognition, and a couple of other pieces. Um, That was a terrible sales pitch. It wasn't meant to be a good sales pitch. Um, The point is is that we've been in the fray for a while now, and we kind of focus on the space that most of you in the room are in. because it's a free product, we measure our success a little bit differently. We have about $9 billion of ARR under management. Basically, this is the ARR of all the fun companies that are using ProfileWell. Um, this is what our revenue looks like. across the mighty $10 million mark um, earlier this year. We are 85 folks based in Boston, Rosario, Argentina, as well as a new office in Salt Lake City. We just opened three weeks ago. Um, we have 78% gross margin. I share this mainly out of ego because everyone... <laughs> Everyone thinks we're a consulting company and it pisses me off. And so I'm just like, no, we're a software company and we have software margins, okay? Um, and the cool thing, we've had zero dollars in funding, um, which is awesome. Um, I don't know if that's a, an accomplishment, but thank you. Um, it didn't come without any costs, though. There's obviously a lot of cost to building a company, no matter if you're funded or not funded. Um, this is what my salary and my bank account looked like over the past number of years. Notice the smallness of the scale. Um, and I don't have any kids. I didn't have um, a partner in crime in life. Um, and so it kind of like worked out. I now have one, which is great, and it's all fun and games. But um, the other thing is, is I used to look like this. Um, that's me on the right, just to clarify. <laughs> and uh, now I look like this. So um, yeah, a lot of time, a lot of effort. Um, it's, it's been a little, little bit terrible, but terrible in a really, really good way. Um, so to kind of jump in here, the first story I want to talk about and the first concept I really, really want to dig into is this whole concept of leverage. And the reason I want to talk about leverage is that when you're in a business, it doesn't matter if you're funded, not funded, heavily funded, doesn't matter if you're in some you know, special vertical, some nerdy vertical, some consumer product, it doesn't really matter what it is, you're under just an immense amount of constraints. And so your job as a CEO, as an executive, as a founder, is to basically utilize those strengths to your advantage. Figure out what the most leverage is for the things that you're trying to accomplish, and then utilize those limited resources to kind of push the ball forward, right? And what's really, really interesting is that us as founders and executives, especially if I look at the early couple of years versus the later couple of years, we're pretty terrible at determining and understanding leverage. There's some of us who are better than others. And this is not 100% of the time. But this is something that a lot of us really, really struggle with. And just to kind of like, do a show of hands, you know, who here has reacted way too quickly to a problem in our business? Right? <laughs> That's right. Yeah, and if you're not raising your hand, you're either a sociopath um, or you have gotten really, really lucky and we should trade lives. Um, that would be awesome. Um, and oftentimes the, the consequences of overreacting is that we get into this world where when we're just one person, it's kind of okay because we can take that you know, emotional stress on ourselves. We probably shouldn't, but we can. But as we continue to grow and as you get to dozens of people, hundreds of people, et cetera, all of a sudden this becomes a huge, huge problem when you overreact and you don't think through actual leverage. And so. What I want to do is I want to talk a little bit about some frameworks that we've learned on how to like, get the most out of your time, your money, and, and just the most leverage out there, um, and provide you that framework to make sure that you have that, that ability to go after solid leverage. And to back up just a second, what I really want to avoid, or what I think we all need to really avoid, is what I like to call the freak out cycle of executive emotion. <laughs> and what this is, and we've all been through this, we know we've all been through this, is all of a sudden, something bad happens in the business, and this probably happens like once a day, if not once a week. It doesn't have to be like a giant, bad thing that happens. It can be a really, really small thing, like a support ticket didn't go your way, or you know some giant competitor comes in the market, or you know your growth is just slowing or not going as fast as you want it. but there's something that, that's bad that happens in the business, right? And not all the time, but probably a little bit too much of the time, we go. This is important, right? Like, we don't question if it's important. We go, this is extremely important. We need to solve this problem right now. Let's drop everything, right? And that creates a little bit of what I like to call the reverberation of fuck, <laughs> right? Where even if it's a small problem, even if it's you know, one of those problems where it's just like that support ticket that someone isn't handling properly. We go, oh my god, I need to solve this problem, and the business is going to tank, because so-and-so can't answer the support ticket, and everything is going to be terrible, right? And so what we do is we jump in, and maybe we're like, cool, I'm going to take care of this customer, I'm going to take care of this situation, or you know, the big competitor comes in the space, so we're going to write some blog posts, and we're going to redo our product roadmap, and we're going to do all these different things, and we just kind of throw the solution at the problem. We guess and check our way to success, right? And then, sometimes that works. A lot of times it doesn't. Sometimes we think it works, and it actually didn't. So this cycle kind of goes through again. But we'll throw another solution at the problem. We'll throw another solution at the problem. And as those solutions continue to go, we start to freak out more and more. And then eventually something will work, right? Eventually something will work. We're very, very resilient people when we're building a business. And basically we'll push something forward and we'll brute force, or we'll be somewhat elegant, or just somewhat lucky in actually solving the problem. The issue is not that this doesn't work. The issue is, is that when we solve that particular problem, if we overreact to solving these particular problems, what ends up happening is we actually cause other bad things to happen. So on a personal level, you know I am not known as the most patient person in the world, um, especially earlier in my career. And if something would happen and something needed to get done, I would go, oh my god, this is important. I'm the only one to solve this not out of ego, but just out of, if I don't solve it myself, something bad's going to happen, and I would jump in and handle that support ticket or jump in and overreact to something that happens, and then all of a sudden maybe I didn't handle the interpersonal communication with that person properly so now they're out there not confident in their job, or maybe I went even worse and I just like screwed up that relationship and now they're scared of me or now they don't want to talk to me about something, but all of a sudden this cycle then continues to happen over and over again. This resonating? Right? Well, here's what I think we should do, right? And you probably know this, but it's one of those things that it's really, really good to understand how we should go after these things. Because what we should do is first just be like, is this important? Like, should we solve this problem? Most of the time, it's probably not. Even if it is, we probably will not necessarily want to jump in necessarily. We're still going to go through that little reverberation of fuck. But what's going to happen is, is we're going to be able to handle that emotion a little bit better. And we're going to be able to handle the situation a little bit better. And when we determine, OK, this is something important. This is something that I'm supposed to solve. This isn't something that I can you know, just trust that team member because it's in my responsibilities. Then what we need to do is think, go through a framework, decide what to do, and act. And all of you do this in your business. Not 100% of the time, but you, you, you're capable of this. But oftentimes, what ends up happening is we forget this think and this framework piece. And what ends up happening is, is we just get into this overreaction cycle where we're just deciding and acting, rather than implementing something, monitoring, adjusting it, and realizing that there still may be negative implications here. But those externalities are probably going to be diminished as we continue to kind of walk through the problem with a little bit better thought process than just kind of guessing and checking. And so, one big kind of framework that I like to talk about and just to actually give you something to kind of latch onto, I found this has really, really good ROI in terms of the amount of time, effort, especially in those emotional moments, is something I like to call problem cause solution. Um, it's you know, a modification of other frameworks that are out there, but basically, what it means is, is that when you have a problem, you have to realize that you cannot solve a problem. If we talk about world hunger, You can't just go, like, let's solve world hunger and just throw a bunch of solutions at that particular problem. What you need to do is you need to break down the causes of that particular problem, which may be lack of irrigation, lack of aid getting to the right people, a whole host of different things. But when you actually break down the causes of a particular problem, that's where you can align your actual solutions to that problem and those causes in order to actually solve the problem that you're trying to go after. And oftentimes, when you use this framework, and you can use this very, very quickly when there's that support ticket. Um, it works really, really well when you're looking at big, scary, expensive problems. But you can also identify not all causes are equal, right? There's some bigger causes that will actually solve the problem a lot better than going after like just throwing stuff up against the wall and basically thinking through, hey, let's just throw something out there and see how it does. So here's an example from ProfitWell. Um, as I mentioned, Um, We have a free subscription financial metrics product. This is what the first version looked like. Um, You bet your ass that that is a piggy bank logo. And you doubly bet your ass that when you scrolled over that piggy bank, that little coin did drop into that piggy bank. (laughs) This is what happens when Patrick designs a product, by the way. Um, So do not hire me for design ever. Um, This is what it looks like now because I'm insecure about the previous picture. Um, But we thought we were geniuses when we thought of this product. We were, help, we were working on this product called Price Intelligently, which we still have. Um, and what we found is we were helping this company that's about to IPO with their pricing, um, collecting a bunch of data for them, using our software to basically give them recommendations. And we discovered, as this outside software vendor, that they were calculating their MRR completely incorrectly. So think about it. CFO taking two other companies public. This was his third company he's about to take public. His MRR completely wrong, right? And so we were like, "This is the ticket. We're going to be billionaires. It's going to be awesome. Let's get deposits on Ferraris right away. It's going to be great, right?" And so all of a sudden, we went to market, and like, we didn't do a big launch because we didn't know how to launch products. I don't know if we still know how to launch products or features. And all of a sudden, within like three weeks, everyone was like, "You heard of this company called Bear Metrics?" you know, had launched in the market? And we were like, fuck, right? They had gotten the hacker news crowd on their side, which was awesome. Their design was really, really good. They had all these features that we didn't have. And they just like were far, far into the market. And as we were kind of puttering along here and kind of look at the trajectory here, all of a sudden a company called ChartMogul launched, um, company called First Officer launched, and then because we were building on top of stripe which makes it relatively easy that was our initial integration like there were 34 other companies that launched um, most of them are gone now but there was just a ton of companies that came out and then over time we had other competition come into the space inside squared they went into the space stripe um, they're in the space now and to kind of like kick us in the face a little bit you know further you know stripe actually invested in bare metrics about a half million dollars so we're like, great, our one integration partner basically invested into the competitor that's ahead of the market. ChartMogul's raised about 4 million, Insight Square's raised 50 million, and Stripe has you know, an immense amount of money, right? And to give you perspective, like at the time, I'm looking at this from my personal perspective, right? So I'd cashed in my 401k, my meager 401k, I'd paid an immense amount of taxes on it. And then basically, like, I'm basically in this like, reverberation, right? And so what we did is we freaked out a little bit, like everyone does, but then what we ended up doing is we took a step back as we were going through the reverberation of fuck. And rather than acting, rather than building, and a lot of this was just because we didn't have as many resources and we didn't have as much to, to just go out and react to, we broke it down and we built out a framework. And so the problem for us was we didn't know what was going on in the actual analytics market. So the first thing that we did is we went out and we wanted to collect some baseline data. So we collected some NPS data from our competitors, customers, and then just a whole swath of other analytics and business intelligence tools out there. And any guesses at the time what the aggregate NPS of the market for analytics and business intelligence was? 7. 6.2. 7, 6.2? Very specific over here. <laughs> any other guesses? Three. Negative 15. <laughs> so we were like, OK are we arrogant enough to think we can do better, right? That was really the question. Like, do we think we can do better, right? And so we did a little bit more research because the problem was really this whole concept of this paid product that we could distribute and monetize and just brilliantly attack the market had just fallen to the wayside, right? So now all of a sudden the problem was this is going to be a lot harder inside our business. And so we looked at the causes of like how we could actually get better distribution and monetization of this product. And the first thing we looked at was there was a lack of willingness to pay in the analytics and business intelligence market. This is why every BI tool, every analytics tool under the sun, there's some rare exceptions, eventually go up market. Because no one wants to pay for analytics because they just don't appreciate how much goes into actually creating the analytics. And this is what the willingness to pay looked like for ProfitWell back then. Um, Just to give you perspective, low end here, 50 bucks a month. High end here, about 250 bucks a month. And whenever you're building a company, um, and, or a product and you're monetizing it, this is like the worst thing you want to see. And the reason is because there's only a 5X lift between the low end customer and the high end customer. And if you've heard of negative churn, right, you basically don't have enough velocity to offset those people who are going to churn, because churn is just a part of life, right? And so really what you want, it's a little side tactical note, is you want a 10 to 20X or more lift between your average low end customer and your average high end customer. And so we didn't see this here, right? And as we continued to dig a little bit deeper, what we found as we were collecting more and more data and trying to understand the cause here is all of a sudden that most of these products kind of exist on this this spectrum or this continuum, where there are data products. These are like your hardcore data warehouses, DevOps tools to make data easier. There's analytics products. Then there's insight products. And then all of a sudden, there's outcome-based products. Because when you think about when you're trying to solve a problem, big, small, whatever it is, What you end up doing is you're like, I need to get towards an outcome. In order to understand that outcome, I need to get data, analyze the data, get some insights from the data, then solve the problem, right? And there are a bunch of different products that existed on the spectrum at the time. But what we found is that if you're on the left half of this particular line, if you weren't an infrastructure product, willingness to pay was terrible. But if you're on the right half of the line, actually, willingness to pay was pretty good. Willingness to pay actually went up as you went across this continuum. And NPS went up as well. And this stands to reason, right? If I help you lower your churn, you can point to me helping you lower your churn. You're willing to pay more. You're probably going to be more satisfied than if I just like, showed you a bunch of graphs, right? And so this really, really helped us kind of crystallize what was happening in the market. And then the other thing that we found in studying our competitors, as well as like, non-direct competitors, is that there was massive accuracy issues in the market. We found out that as folks get bigger, the number one thing they start to care about is the accuracy of the numbers. As they get smaller, they don't really care because you know, 5% off isn't a lot of money, right? And so it was one of those things where we were like, holy cow, we keep hearing this qualitatively. We now have some quantitative to back it up. But then the other causes of the problem that we were going to have were things like, we didn't have name recognition. We actually had name confusion. You're like, you're that pricing consulting company, right? Um, why do you, what's this product? Oh, it must not be great you know, because it's not pricing consulting, right? And then all of a sudden, we didn't have a lot of money, as I talked about, and our product was way behind. Um, It was one of those things where we sat there, and it was like, wow, we don't have a full-time designer. Um, Patrick was the designer, which is terrible. Um, We didn't have enough engineers to kind of get more graphs, which is a lot of our competitors were doing. And so we looked at, basically, let's shut this down, right? And one of the alternatives that we came up with, and it's what we finally did based on these causes, was what we found in another cause here of like, you know, a positive cause was that basically we found that there's a network effect with the data that we get that improves the algorithms for other products that we were basically going after. And so we came up with this model where it's going to be free, accuracy is going to be the number one thing, and we were going to commit to that vision which meant by our estimates that we were going to have to take 18 months of getting kicked in the teeth on a feature disparity in order to basically make sure that the numbers were dead accurate. That's what we did. And it worked out pretty well so far. But the big point here is breaking down these problems. This was a really, really big problem in our business. This was like a, I characterize it as like a $10 million decision on like what to do because we're going to spend a lot of time and money investing in the product. any of your small problems or your medium problems, this is a model that you can use to break things down very, very casually. Um, I use this in my personal life as well. Jenny loves it. Um, She doesn't love it, but it works really well. Let's just put (laughs) it that way. All right. And so the vision basically became, you know, give away anything to the left side of the spectrum here for free. Anything to the right side, that's what we're going to end up charging for. Um, So a little bit of a tactical detour. Um, When I say tactical detour, It's related to what we're talking about, but it's definitely super tactical for your business rather than you as a human. Um, We're going to talk about freemium for a second. Um, Who here loves freemium? Yeah, very hot, cold topic. Who here hates freemium? Yeah, there we go. All right, let's talk about freemium for a second. So freemium is one of those things where most of you in the room are going to have some sort of freemium product in the next 10 to 20 years if you want to kind of go for growth. If you're okay with like, you know, I don't want to call it boutique, I don't want to call it small business, but if you're okay, kind of giving up some of the trade-offs that you get from not going freemium, you'll still be fine. But the biggest reason that freemium is becoming more and more back into vogue is because of the most overused slide in every marketing presentation known to man, (laughs) which is the MarTech landscape, right? So this is, I think this is an old version. Um, This is about the 5,000 different companies that literally are here to help you grow. Every single one of these companies has an H1 on their website that's like, we help you grow through X, right? And in the 2014 version, there was only like 400 companies on it, but the basic point here is that software is just, you know, exploding, because it's easier and easier, quote unquote, to build a product. Hard to build a great product still, but it's one of those things where if everyone in this room wanted to start a brand new company by the end of the day, we could spin up a server, spin up a website, start driving traffic to that website, and yeah, it wouldn't be a great product, but at least that barrier to entry no longer exists, right? And what's happened is what we've noticed is because of that, retention is actually increasing in effectiveness when it comes to customers who converted from freemium. So what you're looking here at some data. And this is, admittedly, only about 150 companies. So there, there are some definite, definite issues with the data here. But this top line you're looking at are those customers who converted from freemium. The middle line are those customers who converted from a free trial. And the bottom line are customers who converted from a, from a cold start and their retention over time. And the reason that, or at least we're positing, we have some other data to kind of support this notion that this is happening is because you have so many different choices in the market right now. And what we've done in the past, from a business perspective, is we've put customers on our timeline when it comes to actually converting. So even if we have a free trial or we're having a sales conversation, it's, hey, are you ready to convert? 14 days are up. Are you ready to convert? Let's go, let's go, let's go, right? And That puts customers off. They have so many other options. They get distracted. They don't come back, even if you have their email address and you're hitting them up. Whereas freemium puts the onus on the customer to convert. And so they might sit there for six months, 12 months, 18 months, not converting, using some sort of freemium product. And all of a sudden, then they're like, oh, yeah, I need that solution. Or they start to consume more of whatever you're providing. And those customers tend to retain a lot better. The other really, really interesting about freemium is NPS, or Net Promoter Score, tends to be much better for those customers who converted from freemium than free trial or a cold start as well. Well, you're looking at the left here, and this is about 350 companies. Left-hand side here is NPS five years ago for convert from cold start, free trial, and freemium. Right-hand side is about a year or two ago, same particular graphs here. And what you'll notice is that NPS overall is actually down. And this is just because software isn't as magical as it once was. You used to be able to put a login screen on a database and everything was amazing, right? Now it's like, if you don't have good design, good support, like people don't want to talk to you even, right? But it's one of those things where kind of respecting that timeline is super, super important, and it's one of those things that supports that freemium is actually in your future. There are problems with freemium. There are idiosyncrasies that come with freemium. It's not for everybody, but it is one of those things where the data is starting to support it. Um, and if you want more information, we wrote a big book on freemium. Um, you can just go to profitable.com slash freemium. Um, to get an 80-page book on it. Um, if you don't want to download the form, my email's at the end, so you, I can give you just the PDF. Cool. Next, we're going to talk about truth. Um, and truth is pretty interesting, right? Because truth is, is rarely black and white, right? Oftentimes, we think truth is a super, super binary thing, especially you know, when we're you know, dealing with like, issues that we don't know what's going on. But oftentimes, what we find in companies, like the truth of what works and what doesn't or what you should do, is is anything but binary, right? And just for a show of hands here, who here has overreacted emotionally to someone on their team before? (laughs) This is the sociopath test, right? Or the paying attention test, that's maybe what it is, right? And I think that what's really fascinating about this is that you're moving so quickly inside a company, and we talked about this a little bit in the leverage point, but oftentimes what happens is that truth gets really, really murky, not because truth is necessarily not obvious or not helpful to see, but because we just become, frankly, batshit insane when we're trying to like solve a particular problem. It might be just for a moment, but it's one of those things that clouds our judgment a lot. And so just as a little bit of an experiment here, I'm going to ask you all to be guinea pigs. We're going to run a little bit of experiment. It's not sanctioned, so please don't sue me. Um, but what I'm going to ask you is I'm going to show you a couple of prompts. And these are prompts that... I have data on. I am the source of the data. I did the work putting the data together. And I want you to gauge your emotional reaction to each of these particular prompts. Cool? All right, so first data point. Founders who sleep less than five hours a night grow slower, their companies, not them as a human, (laughs) than those who sleep seven to eight hours per night. Most of you probably agree, right? Most of you are like, yeah, I've read that sleep study. Arianna Huffington told me I should sleep more. Like, most of us are like, yeah, this makes sense. Like, sleep's important, right? So I'm not even going to show you the actual data output here. Because it's probably all mostly in agreement, right? Next one. Companies with institutional funding have higher churn rates than those who are bootstrapped. Yeah, that's right, right? Bootstrap crew, right? Here's the data. What you're looking at here is a couple of pairs. So these are companies on the far left here. These folks have funding up to 100k, or funding up to, and they're up to 100k MRR in terms of their size. These are companies that have no funding of the same size. These are companies doing half million MRR, or up to a half million funding, no funding, and then the same kind of thing going up to companies doing 10 million a month or more, right? And notice, the funding, they're within the same interquartile ranges, but it is slightly higher. And it diminishes a little bit as you get higher, right? Now, some of you are thinking, oh, that makes sense. Like, there's some moral hazard with raising funding. You spend more time on acquisition, you're probably not getting the right type of customers, so like churn rates would tend to be higher, but that's the cost of growth, right? A little churn earlier on, right? Next up. Ooh. Founders with hobbies and who score high on a work life balance index have slower-growing companies. Crowd's starting to turn on me. <laughs> Here's the data. 400 companies. And this is not survey data. This is all growth data. Dark green, these are companies with are led by founders who have hobbies. Lighter green, these are companies that are led by founders who do not have hobbies. Data's cleansed. Outliers are cleaned. function-filling analysis. I did this for the NSA. I'm a pretty good data analyst, all right? (laughs) Right? And here's the work-life balance. Dark green, I did a little anthropological study where I asked them a number of questions around how they think about work-life balance, then did a scoring-like index. Dark green, the folks who scored high in the upper quartile of balance. Light green, the folks who scored low on work-life balance. And that's their growth rates, right? And this is the one where I might get chased off the stage. (laughs) Remote companies have considerably worse growth and worse retention than co-located ones. Now some of you want to murder me. (laughs) It's like I came up here and was like, Trump forever, or something like that, right? (laughs) Here's the data. This is growth data. All of these companies are remote. There's 2,000 of them, and it's relative to a set of companies that are co-located, meaning they're all in one office. You'll notice the ARPU, companies that are doing less than $200, so these are com- or, excuse me, companies that are selling products that are essentially less than $200. Growth is about 20% lower um, for those companies, all the way down to 25% for those companies that are a little more enterprisey. right? Again, same person doing the data analysis you want to kill me, or some of you want to kill me on this one, the sleep thing, you were like, sure, yep, Patrick's right, right? And just to be clear before you want to murder me, like, there are so many other trade-offs in these last two slides, right? Like, this is from zero to 10 million ARR. As you get over 10 million remote basically becomes, you know, non-different than, you know, co-located companies, obviously with the hobby thing, like, we didn't put divorce rates in there or anything like that, right? <laughs> so like, there's trade-offs, but the thing you got to think about is that this might be true, right? But what happens when I tell you data that supports your opinion, you're like, absolutely, I am right, I am fucking awesome, I know everything, right? But when I tell you something that just puts a little pinprick, just a little bit of like doubt in the thing that you believe so strongly because you read it on Twitter, right? <laughs> All of a sudden, you want to murder me, right? And this is known as what's called the backfire effect, which basically means, and they've studied this, is that when I give you data that, does, that basically negates or goes against the things that you firmly believe, the same parts of the brain get triggered as if I was a bear attacking you, not like a bear in terms of my look. We don't like that joke? There you go, Mark. Here we go but like an actual physical bear just coming at you and trying to like take you out, right? Like it's the same part of the brain. And I think that this is something that happens oftentimes because we are moving so quickly, we have so much anxiety over what's going on inside our business, early days, late days, no matter what's going on or what stage we're at, that we end up clouding our actual judgment instead of actually searching for the truth of what makes sense for us or what makes sense for our business. And that's really, really important to get some introspection on and what I've learned to kind of like harness this a little bit, because if you haven't noticed, I'm a pretty opinionated human being, is in order to help pursue truth, you have to be open to being wrong. That's a really, really hard thing for founders, executives, CEOs to understand, because we're right all the time. And we're not right all the time, but we're the one making decisions, and some of those things turn out okay, so we assume we're right. And so the thing that's unlocked this for me in the past couple of years is something called the most charitable interpretation principle. And what this basically means is that when someone comes to you and says, hey, I think this is a better idea than what you're doing, or, hey, have you seen this data? It kind of like goes against the thing that we're thinking about. Or, hey, there's just this problem. Like, I think we should solve it this way. Rather than overreacting, or rather than being like, oh my god, you're wrong, and causing an overreaction on an emotional basis, What you should do is you should assume the other person is competent, has good intentions, and just assume that they may be right. It doesn't mean that you have to agree with them, but it allows you to start the conversation and figure out exactly what they mean. And the perfect example of this for me is I've had many, many discussions with people where they'll be like, they'll say something, and it just won't be clear. I'll just assume what they're saying, and then all of a sudden we get into an argument, and by the end of the argument, all of a sudden, it's like, oh, you meant this thing? Oh yeah, I totally agree with that. Let's move on, right? But now I've just been a little bit of an asshole. Um, and all of a sudden, like, I've hurt the relationship, right? Um, Jenny is such a lucky woman. Like, we hang out all the time, right? No, but it's one of those things that really, really helps. And it's given me like, that extra second to be like, I probably don't understand what they're saying if I'm having an emotional reaction to what's going on. Or it's probably a little bit more complicated than I think I should take a second to actually have a conversation with them. Because you don't want to be this little baby who's freaking out. Or think that your coworkers are stupid, because they're not. You hired them, you vetted them, and you believe that they should be focusing on something for a reason. The other thing that really helps me here is this whole concept, and this is a little bit like ironic given what we just talked about. Um, one of our values or our principles at ProfitWell is be disagreeable, think critically. Um, and this isn't licensed to be an ass, but it's one of those things where it's really, really important to break down problems, very similar to what we talked about already. But one of the easiest things that we do to help us not overreact is have a mindset of red teaming. Anyone know what this is? So the security world uses this a lot. I learned a lot of this in the Intel community. And basically what it means is, is that when there is a proposal, there is another team, especially if the proposal is something that's like really, really important or really, really big who's basically arguing the other side, or is basically figuring out how the enemy or how the other person is going to react. So in this particular scenario, there's some decision or direction that's being proposed, and then a red team is basically going through all the other scenarios on what's going to actually happen. And what makes this really, really powerful is it gets into a little bit of like pseudo game theory, because you can start to figure out, okay, this person's bringing me this idea. They're smart. Like, let me think through this idea. Or they're bringing me this idea, I actually inherently think it's a good idea, but let's consider that it's not a good idea. And let's like, figure out all the different scenarios that we need to think about so that we've looked at the entire scope of the problem on a you know, still passionate but like a less emotional basis to then make a decision, regroup, and act. So most charitable interpretation, red teaming, really, really important. And here's a not fun example from ProfitWell. <laughs> Um, So, how many of you work hard? Some of you are not raising your hand. It's because you think it's a trap, don't you? It's not a trap. So, I work a lot. Um, We kind of go after mid-market enterprise companies, and so I'm on, like, the conference circuit and all that kind of fun stuff. And so, I'm away from home a lot. Um, And on a relationship, that can be really, really tough. Uh, And so, it's one of those things where, like, those moments when you're able to be home be present and basically dedicate to your loved one or whatever it is. Um, Those are really, really important, right? And so I was having a great weekend. It was a weekend that was amazing. Jenny and I were hanging out with the dog. Monday morning, we got really early. I love getting up early and just like hanging out. We walked the dog to the park. It was awesome. Had our little cups of hot coffee. It was awesome, right? Then what I did is what you should never do at 6.30 AM on a Monday morning. I looked at Twitter. And when I looked at Twitter, this is what I found. So one of the CEOs of one of our competitors had tweeted, how do you deal with an unethical competitor? And then some other fun stuff, and basically said that we were being unethical because we were doing fake reviews. And they shared some screenshots. And basically what had happened is there was someone here who had put essentially the same, they were basically able to trace some reviews on both of us back to this like clearly fake LinkedIn profile. Fuck. <laughs> right? And then as Twitter does, especially like, it's called Bootstrap Twitter, or like Startup Twitter, all of a sudden our other competitor CEO jumped in. Yup, ah! If you could see this email thread that we're talking about, low-class, unethical, et cetera. It's going to be a great morning, right? Because the reaction for most of us, fuck these guys. <laughs> right? Going to war, competition, right? But then I think about it, and I'm like, if this is true, this is kind of a dick thing, right? Like us doing fake reviews, right? Like us, like if, if this is true and they were doing this, I would be pissed, right? Like maybe I would handle it a little bit differently, like I would email them rather than like tweeting about it, but like, it's a little soft jab, but like. <laughs> but still, like I would be aggravated. I'd maybe subtweet, right? And so we have a larger problem. The problem isn't, hey, they've gone public with this. The problem is, is there might be a problem inside the company, right? And oftentimes when bad stuff happens, especially like this, we're just like, screw those guys, like, we're awesome, right? When in reality, like this would be our screw up, right? So we got a problem. The reviews look fake. There's Twitter and public issues. We have relationships with these competitors. I've been I've emailed these guys, I've been really nice to them, I've bought them gifts, I've done all this stuff because I think you should be like, nice to your competitors even if they're not nice back. There's perception issues, right? Because it's all public. So we broke it down, right? What could be the causes? Talked to the whole team, interviewed all of the like, like potentially high-level suspects, engineers who were really involved in marketing, so it wasn't just the marketing folks. Basically talked to everyone in some capacity. Nothing came up and nothing, like I was a little bit of like a prosecuting or a de- defense attorney or however you want to look at it, I was trying to find The person. And nothing came up, and I trust the team, right? So then I was like, all right, maybe it's external. We have some contractors. Like, maybe someone did this. And it was like, okay, let me talk to all the contractors. I trust the contractors. I, you know, was really, really specific. And then I found, I think, who the culprit is. I never got to the actual culprit. Um, We had tried some affiliate work, like, two years ago. Those affiliates, right? Bad people. No, I'm just kidding. They're not bad people. But, like, we think there was an affiliate. We contacted them. We weren't able to get on the phone with them. And so they might not be the person who did this, but it was one of those things where we were like, this might be the case. But we didn't get a definitive answer, right? So these are some causes. We don't have like, really, really clear solutions. So I went after and started solving the problem. Contacted G2 Captera. They did an audit. We all lost positive and negative reviews in the entire category. Made it clear to the team that this is just unacceptable, in case like, I just wasn't able to root out who actually did this. Um, we didn't tweet. This was something we just like, we tweeted, just very basic, like, hey, like, obviously this sucks, we're investigating, we're trying to figure it out. Um, and we handled anyone who asked us, because there were some people who were concerned, because you know, I don't want to be associated with a company that does that. And so some people like, came to us and were just like, hey, what's up? And we handled those one-on-one, and then I wrote both the CEOs very, very long emails just saying, like, hey, if this stuff comes up, we don't want to win this way, blah, 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 blah. Like, I'm here, and I address some of the things that they had said. But the point is is that it's really, really emotional, right? You're being attacked. These people are trying to compete with you. But it's one of those things, if you look at it with as steady as a heart and as steady as a mind as possible, you actually get to that truth. And yeah, you're still going to have emotional tailspins. I was freaking out at 6.30. I was like, "Ah, oh, what do we do? What is going on? Morning was ruined. Dog was freaking out. It was bad. But it was one of those things where we focus on the right thing. So a little bit of a tactical detour. Um, it's been in vogue recently to talk about like, competitive marketing and things like this. So I want to talk about competitors a little bit. Um, I think that it, it, it's kind of fascinating how people feel about competitive behavior, right? So some people um, they think it's an ethical thing to be open about competing with a customer or a competitor. They think it's unethical to talk about you know, certain aspects of you're better than them or they're better than you at certain things. Other people, they're like down and dirty, and it's like you know, review spam and like stuff like that, right? What's interesting is that the data actually supports a little bit of both sides. Um, But we've heard a lot of, like, don't focus on your competitors. But if you look at any company of any size, you'll notice that competitive marketing is just a fact of life. And it's mainly because of this, right? We started a company in 2005. You know, you didn't have to be as competitive marketed because there just wasn't as many competitors and the markets were so big. Now there's markets where there's only, like, 50,000 subscription companies in the world, and there's three products, two of them funded, and, and, and all that kind of fun stuff just for subscription analytics, right? And so what we found is that competitors have gone up. Your competitors in your first year of business have risen pretty dramatically. If you started your company five, six years ago, the number of competitors that we, you would have on day one averaged about three. If you started your business a couple years ago, the average number of competitors you would have on day one is 10. And again, not all good competitors. It's just that, you know again, software is easier and easier to build. And so what we've seen in the data, though, is that those folks who tend to have a competitive marketing strategy tend to have lower CAC. And it's highly correlative, but what you're seeing here is that CAC is up over time across the board, but essentially those who are doing a little bit more competitive marketing, especially in competitive markets, are seeing lower CAC, because the theory is you're helping them basically determine what option that they should have. Because everyone's doing a bunch of research, right? They're already looking at all three competitors. They're just trying to do some research on what's different and what's not. And so there's a right way to do this. There's a wrong way to do this. I think Drift actually has some really, really good competitive marketing. But it's one of those things where the data does support that doing some sort of marketing strategy on a competitive basis actually is a good thing, at least from the numbers perspective. Now, interestingly enough, when we look at it from a product perspective, using NPS, which isn't the perfect measurement of product, but what we found for at least these just over 200 companies is that those individuals who have a competitive product strategy tend to have lower NPS, and in some cases, half the NPS, as those individuals who don't focus on their competitors or the overall measure of NPS in the market. And so you've got to decide what's right for you. I don't think it's an ethical matter. There's obviously unethical ways to do this. But it is one of those things where competitors are more and more important in your market than they have before. Not for all industries, not for all verticals, but certainly for a lot of them now. Cool. Let's talk about a fun one, fear, Okay. Um, Who here has felt like their company isn't going to work out before? Even for a moment, Rob, looking at you, bud. There it is. Right? We run into these problems, right? Because we're human. Things happen, bad stuff happens, and then we freak out. So I've had a terrible founding career. Um, just to give you a little bit of perspective, when we're going through this cycle, there's a lot of different things that come at you that have that fear kind of creep into your heart and fear creep into your understanding of how you're going to build your company. There's stuff that's external. There's stuff from good places. Who here's had a family member go, are you actually unemployed? Right? Is everything okay? Right? Many family members do that. That's from a good place. Bad place. There's just a bunch of crap, crappy people that deal with you. And then there's just acts of God that happen, right? That mess up and just let that fear kind of get into your heart, right? For me, you know, this is what our subscription revenue looked like. This is what it actually looked like for the history of the company, right? It was pretty bad. And we had one-time revenue here. That's how we were able to survive there. But it was one of those things where it was pretty painful because during this long swath, um, I founded the company in the worst way possible. Like, I know you maybe founded your company in a bad way. I founded the company in a worse way, I almost guarantee you. Um, Just terrible, terrible. Um, I had part-time co-founders, which is like a pretty bad thing. I mean, some of you are part-time, and you're probably great, but my part-time co-founders had full-time jobs and kids and all these other things that just made it really hard for them to actually help. Um, And it gets worse. Uh, My part-time co-founders were vested. I was not. I know. (laughs) It's a long story. I'm not going to go through it all. Both those part-time co-founders who were vested had more shares than I did and could technically vote me out of the business, or technically take the business away from me, don't worry, it gets worse. Our lawyer was the sister-in-law of one of the (laughs) part-time (sighs) co-founders. And we had very little alignment. So again, most charitable interpretation. We were all first-time founders, there was a lot of trust, and everything just seemed super logical. And it would have been really easy for me, and there were moments where I was like, fuck these guys. They're trying to screw me over, because it, it was not like, we weren't all friends, we weren't all charitable. It was like, it was a really, really tough four years to basically undo a lot of this. Just getting a lawyer was a really, really tough part. Not because I think anyone had like really bad intent, but at the moment it was like, well, this is my sister-in-law, like, let's throw her some work, and I'm like, yes, but I think you're trying to screw me over whether that's right or wrong. Like I still think it, right? And there's lawyers everywhere, so like why can't we just get another lawyer, right? But it was one of those things where that really, really sucked. Um, I broke up with someone I was dating for seven years. Um, so it's not a divorce, but it's kind of like a divorce, right? And I'm not gonna say the company caused the relationship to go down, but the company definitely exposed the problems in the relationship. Um, to make matters worse, she definitely worked at ProfitWell. Um, so, yeah. That sucked. Honestly, it sucked more for her and I feel terrible. Like in hindsight, I was like, I'm not leaving. Um, Like, that sucks, right? And that was really emotionally taxing. Um, The Reddest devotion I already mentioned this, like, it was like, oh, we have the space all to ourselves. It's going to be amazing. And then it's like, oh, there's 36 other people who are geniuses too, right? And then, to kind of kick things all off, um, a couple of years into the company, I got cancer. So, yep, that's right. Dropping the hard C in the middle of a talk, right? And that sucked, right? It didn't just suck for all the obvious reasons. But the one thing they don't tell you about getting cancer is how much like emotional stuff you have to deal with. And it's not just the, like, I'm going to die, right? It's the, everyone's telling you I'm sorry. And you have to go. No, it's okay. <laughs> no, it's gonna be fine. I'll figure it out. I'm strong. It's all gonna be fine, right? But when you're in the middle of founding a company that's bootstrapped and you're trying to grow and you got just like moving forward, you get hit in the face and you're like, cool, gotta go to radiation every day, and you gotta deal with all this other stuff. It sucks, right? And to kind of give you some context, it's actually the second time I had cancer. Um, uh, I got sick first time at Google. If you have to get sick, go work at Google. It's fucking amazing. Like, my boss is just like, "You want to leave? You can just go, like, hang out." And I was like, "Are you still gonna pay me?" Yeah, we'll pay you more. And I was like, <laughs> "I'm like, all right." I kept working because um, I have psychological problems of trying to like make everything good, even though everything's terrible. Um, and, And everything is, like, great now. But the second time it happened, it was, like, I was, like, six months to remission, official remission, and it was just, like, another kick in the face, right? And then the second time it happened, thankfully, it was caught early, but now I'm going through radiation while, like, trying to build a company, and it wasn't, like, the easiest time in the company's trajectory, and I'm dealing with all this stuff. And the reason I'm sharing you this is not because it's, like, a contest, right? Like, we all have our own Lifetime movie, right? We probably all have multiple Lifetime movies, kid has a problem at school, going through a divorce, going through a breakup, like co-founders leaving, all this other stuff. But the thing you got to think about is what we're trying to do is difficult. What we are trying to do is create something from nothing and then trying not to lose that opportunity and take advantage of that opportunity. But life is still going to happen. And what ends up happening is, That fear creeps into that heart as you continue to try to build that business. And what's dangerous about that is that if you don't have the right infrastructure, not only around you, but internally in your mind, it opens you up to actually becoming a failure. And it's hard. But what I've found is that this is our advice. When someone's going through something tough, what we end up doing is we go, Have you tried meditation? Or, should really work out, should eat well, sweet greens, awesome, should eat some salads, right? My personal favorite, journal, (laughs) right? And it's not that any of these things are bad. Like, of course, these are super helpful things. But you have to think about that they treat the symptoms. And they're mildly preventative, because at the end of the day, these are the types of things that if you haven't figured out and cleared your own internal shit and figured out where you need to be, anytime something bad happens, and there's gonna be something bad that happens, it just puts another like chink in the armor or crack in the foundation of you building something great. And so what I encourage you to do is you gotta figure out your why. And it's different for everybody on how to figure that out, but it's not money. It's definitely not money, because there are easier ways to make money than starting a company. But that why of what pushes you forward is so, so important, because it forms, essentially, the core of what you want and why you're pushing things forward when you face that adversity. And it doesn't matter what the adversity is. And that's kind of like that nice little nuclear reactor that sits inside you that pushes you forward when things happen. And then the way that you kind of surround yourself with the right partners. This was a big thing. I didn't have the right partners in the business. But when I found them, it started to make everything better because when I was having a bad day or there was something that was coming in to kind of attack that core, all of a sudden, they were having hopefully a good day and that could kind of offset things, right? And then finding the right team. Being unapologetic about who should be in your team. So many times I talk to founders or CEO friends and they're just like, yeah, this person's on the team. and I do that too, right? Because people are hard. But it's like, why don't, Why don't you move them on? It doesn't have to be a negative thing, but if they're just not right for your culture, or if you're trying to average out your culture and be like everybody, then you're nothing and you can't push things forward. And then ultimately finding the right family and friends. I had the wrong friends. My friends, like, they would liken me to, like, a self-employed contractor and I was, like, no, I'm trying to, like, build something bigger. I want to build something bigger, right? And when you find the right friends, and oftentimes there are going to be a lot of people in this room who are going to end up being your friends for this, a- this angle, that really helps protect that core even further. And so the way to get there, um, it took me a lot of introspection. I've become a lot more like emotional versus like the math days of 10 years ago, but it takes a lot of introspection to understand your why. And then once you start to figure it out, consume all the advice you can. Talk to everyone about this, get vulnerable folks. And then I think one of the most important points is be just unapologetic about what you want. And find people who are also unapologetic about what they want. And if you can find people who have disagreements with what you want and what they want, even better, because it helps you entrench for what you want. That's what helps you keep that core. That's what helps you protect yourself against those cracks in that foundation. So the last tactical detour, what helps with a lot of this stuff. Um, as we've grown, we've found that writing and speaking to our team just more than we ever thought before is super, super important. Um, your team craves information. They crave direction. They crave alignment. It doesn't mean that you're supposed to micromanage them. But it just means that talk about this stuff with them. This is who we are. If you don't want to be here, that's OK. Move on. We'll find you another gig, it's gonna be fine. This is who we are, this is what we do, this is the direction we're going, these are the snacks we get in the office, like all that kind of fun stuff. It's super, super helpful for folks. Um, We basically follow this format. So when we're putting together like anything, what are the principles of that thing that we're talking about? Our customer profile that we're going after, our marketing plan, et cetera. Create a narrative doc, this is like an essay. I know you haven't written in a while, but essays are really, really good for some people to kind of read things and consume things. There'll be a presentation. We'll also do some sort of media, podcast, video, something like that, and then basically get it out there and make sure that you can kind of test and iterate to make sure that most folks understand. Um, We try to do weekly posts. So this is like snack stuff, stuff like that. The bigger stuff will probably take multiple weeks to get it out there, but it's a good forcing function to make sure you're communicating with your team, especially if you're remote. Where there just isn't as much like surface area for that communication. Um, the other thing we do, and this is a little morbid given the cancer conversation, um, if I die, docs. So, the, you know, the first time this is going to sound really morbid. Trust me, everything's okay. I promise. Um, we had if I die, docs. So the first time I had cancer, like it kind of like, like it really crystallizes, helps you like figure out what you want. Really crystallizes like what you need to do to make sure that. You know, if, God forbid, you do get hit by a bus or, you know, you pass away, like, you can figure out what to do. And then ultimately, it just really, really helps you crystallize, like, how to communicate. That's what it helped me in terms of a business capacity. So we create a lot of what are called if I die docs. And what these are, and we use Notion for most of them now, but even in, like, you know, basically just creating command centers for every portion of the business. And this is just basic documentation. The more technical folks in the room, you know, obviously get this. But it's one of those things where it's super, super critical to make sure that you can have all of that institutional memory. Because, you know, obviously people in your business aren't going to be there forever. You want them to be there forever. You might not be in your business forever. And I know that's a scary thought, but you're trying to build something that's going to be sustainable. So we do if I die docs. Everyone has one personally, and then each team has one. But as I'm going over on time here, big thing to keep in mind, just to recap. Understand your leverage. That's your job as an executive. Seek truth that's going to help you kind of control those emotional pieces and then ultimately understand that fear is going to creep in so set yourself up to basically protect yourself understand that fear so that it doesn't get to that core and be unapologetic about what you want because at the end of the day you know if you're in this room you probably face some adversity but like life's pretty good we're not trying to like figure out how we stop ditch digging we're actually building something and we have that that blessed position in this world that we can do that. So make sure that you're unapologetic about that. And remember that you are your champion and you are your enemy, know thyself and control. And if you have any questions, Patrick at ProfitWell.com or if you want the slides. Thanks.
0: Don't forget, you can sign up to receive regular updates from Boss with news, new videos, new events, and conference speaker updates. Visit businessofsoftware.org update to find out more. We hope you're enjoying these podcast episodes and would really appreciate if you could leave us a five star review on Apple Podcasts to help us reach more ears and more businesses. Feel free to get in touch with the BOSS team on Twitter at at BOSS Conference. Thanks for listening to the Business of Software podcast. For more information, go to businessofsoftware.org.